Matthew chapter 13. Jesus has um, just spoken the parable of the sower sows the word to his disciples. And his disciples following this came to him privately. Verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them is not given. He's talking about the, the crowds and Pharisees and whoever else was in the crowd. Notice that. It says, because it's given unto you. He's talking about his disciples. Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, talking about ears to hear, talking about an attitude toward the word. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your ears, for they see, and your, uh, your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see these things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. It's, um, there's an important point that Jesus is making here that is, um, well, let me say, it's kind of at odds with how most people think about God. Most people think about God and talk about his goodness and his mercy and his willingness to do anything and everything for his children that they require of him or ask of him or whatever. And that's perfectly true. But Jesus is saying God doesn't have the same attitude toward everybody. He just doesn't have the same attitude. He picked the 12 and probably the 70 are there as well. But he picked these people to know or to understand or to hear the, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But not everybody else. It's... Um, in 1975, I came into the possession of a tape series by Kenneth Hagin entitled The Mountain Moving Faith Series. I don't remember where I got it. I don't know how I got a hold of it, but I got it. And I listened to these, these tapes, listened to one of the tapes, and it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say or preach or talk about the ability of us to have what we say. First time I'd ever heard mentioned the subject of faith from a standpoint that, well, from a position anything other than just believe and get saved. I had no idea that faith was something that you could utilize. I had no idea that it was something you needed to have even uh, after you're saved. Because like I said, the only thing I'd ever heard was faith to be saved. I'd heard preaching about Jesus on the cross, and that produces faith in people's hearts. It did in mine to give your heart and life to Jesus. But I didn't know there was anything else after that. So I heard this tape series. I listened to this one tape. You can have what you say. 
or at least I don't remember if that was the title of it, but it was the, the gist of the message. I listened to it one time, and I, I remember thinking, this sounds too good to be true. And so I put them away. Well, a couple of months went by, I guess. And then something, I, I, can't, I can't tell you what it was. It wasn't, uh, looking back at it, I know it was the Holy Ghost now. But I didn't know anything about the Holy Ghost at that point. Didn't know whether there'd be such a Holy Ghost at that point in time. But something got me interested in listening to the rest of that series. And so I did. I listened to that series and enjoyed the tapes, was wild by the message, because again, this was so foreign and so new to me, I, I couldn't believe that people really thought that kind of stuff. But I, I looked in the Bible, I went along with uh, Brother Hagin in the, in the uh, listening to the tape series, looked up the scriptures that he was referring to and found out those were in my Bible too. Who knew? But it wasn't for another almost two years that I really came to the place where I was sold out to the Word. It took about two years. It was in 1977, in the middle of the year, in 1977, where I realized I had listened to these tapes several times through by then. Didn't have them memorized, but had a good understanding of what they're going to say. And I realized the more that I listened to them, the more I enjoyed them. And so somewhere in the neighborhood of two years from the time that I first got the tape series. I made a decision. I remember just as clear as a bell. I remember making a decision that I was going to find out everything I could about the Word. And after having made that decision, almost immediately, almost the next day or overnight, as we might say, I started seeing more out of those tape series than I had seen and heard before, having listened to them several times through. I know that people don't get it the first time they come. I, I was listening to um, somebody relating a, a testimony that uh, uh, somebody else in the church had given to them. And it was something like this. It was something like, you know, when I first started coming to Foothill Family Church and heard Pastor Mike, I didn't understand anything he was saying. Now, folks, I'm not deep. I'm not intellectual. Or at least I don't approach things from an intellectual standpoint. I know I don't use big words. I don't want to use big words. And so when somebody comes in and says they don't understand the word, that used to really bother me. It used to really bug me because I thought, well, I'm doing something wrong. I need to change how I say things or, or whatever. I remember Brother Hagin telling the story about when he was pastoring. There was a guy in his church that was uh, intellectually challenged. He, nothing really wrong with him. He's just slow, or what we might consider to be slow. And Brother Hagin would ask him after every Sunday morning service, after every week, he'd ask him, did you get that? Did you get what I was trying to say? And most of the time, or at least in the early part of it, the, the guy would say, no, Brother Hagin, I, I really didn't. I tried, but I really didn't. And so Brother Hagin said he'd keep trying and working on the messages that he was preaching, making them more and more simple so that anybody could understand them. And I think he did a fantastic job. So, and it came to the point where one day the guy came to him, shaking hands with him after the service, 
the morning service. And he said, Brother Hagin, I got it. I see what you're saying. Brother Hagin used that ex- as an example for what he was attempting to do to make the word simple enough where anybody and everybody could understand it. Well, having heard and been familiar with that example, when people would say, uh, not to me, but would say to other people that they didn't understand what's going on in church and stuff like that, I, I thought it was my fault. And so I started trying to make some adjustments and stuff like that. And I finally came to the realization, a lot of people aren't getting what I'm saying, not because they don't understand, not because I'm not saying it clearly, but because they're in the same place that I was before I committed to the Word. Look with me over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Um... Now, let's start in verse 29. And he that sent me, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. We're taking up at the tail end of his message. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, you know as well as I do that nobody could get born again. Nobody could be saved when Jesus was here on the earth because the price hadn't been paid. The cross hadn't occurred. So when it says they believed on him, we're left to wonder what do they believe. I think to the the greatest part or the most part, they believed that he was the Messiah. They didn't have a lot of information about what was going to come next or what to expect or whatever. But I believe it means they believed that he was sent from heaven. And then Jesus said to those Jews that believed on him, please notice who he's talking to. Then said Jesus to the Jews that believed on him. That would have to include those that we just spoke of, people that believe he's the Son of God sent from heaven or the Messiah. He said to the ones that believed that he was the Christ, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Please notice that Jesus recognized and told us about the difference between believers and disciples. Do you see that? Jesus knew that there was a difference between believers and disciples. I think a big portion, maybe the majority, of American Christians are believers, but not continuing in the Word. Thank God for the advancements that have been made. Beth was listening to a a, a message or a part of a message here just a couple of days ago uh, at one of the seeker-sensitive churches, uh, which is a name they use for uh, for the way they do church. Big church, well-known, famous across the country and so forth. And there was a guy that was preaching, one of the associate pastors, that was preaching about reading the Word of God daily, diligently, and saying what God's Word says. Well, folks, this is not a denominational church because it doesn't belong to a denomination, but they operate as a denominational church. They operate as a Baptist church. They wouldn't use the name Baptist to save their lives because that would run people off. But they function as a Baptist church. Now, I don't know if the guy still got his job. I don't know if they've let him go yet. But in a famous, big, mega American church, Baptist church, they're talking about confessing the word. 
Things are changing. For years, denominational churches have been singing the song about the grace of God and it being it belonging to them. Let the weak say I'm strong and so forth. That wasn't done. That wasn't heard of 35 years ago. Nobody would do that. No Baptist church would ever utter those words. They'd be too concerned about being grouped in with those confession people. But notice Jesus is talking about not all Christians fall into the same category. He said to the Jews that believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth by continuing in the word. Now they're believers, they're saved, or the equivalent of being saved would be the equivalent of being saved in our day. They're believers. But if they're not continuing in the word, they can't know the truth. They may know the truth about salvation. They may know the truth about Jesus making a sacrifice of his own life and shedding his blood for us. But Jesus is talking about more truth than that. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Where are you going to find the truth? There's only one place to get it, and that's the word. When I made a decision in 1977 that I was going to find out everything about the word that I could, I had heard those tapes enough to where they had taken root to the point where I knew that I knew that I knew that that was true. I knew from an inward witness, didn't know anything about following an inward witness, didn't know anything about the Holy Ghost witnessing to your heart, but I just knew on the inside the word's true. I knew that the, the messages that Brother Hagin was teaching, the word that he was using in those tapes, I knew it was true. I just knew. Wasn't a special knowing that I had because God had planned for me to be a pastor. It was the same knowing that all of us have when we hear and recognize the truth. And that's when things started changing for me. That's when things started changing for me. When I committed myself to the word. I went through those tape series, that tape series. I didn't even have another. Didn't know where you got them, to be honest with you. I knew so little at that point in time. Didn't know anything much about Rhema. I may have known that it existed, but didn't have anything to do with me. And so I went through that tape series, and I must have listened to that thing hundreds of times. First time I ever remember my faith really working is when the uh, cassette tape wrapped around the spindle in the player. You remember how those things used to work? Well, if you don't catch it in a hurry, that tape, that cassette is gone. It's done for. And I was listening and I had, like I said, I had listened to these things probably a hundred times or more. I saw that, uh, you know, you can hear it when it starts to go, starts to whir. I heard it and I just said out loud, no, that tape will not be destroyed. And I pulled it out and everything was fine. I just rewound it a little bit, used a pencil point to rewind it, and it was good as new. I was not willing to let that tape go. Because it was the truth. It was becoming a lifeline for me. Went to Bible school, got around Brother Hagin, heard Brother Hagin quote most of the 
scriptures that he used without ever having to look at the Bible he'd let us turn. But he's quoting three quarters of the New Testament in most situations. And I thought to myself, how in the world does anybody get there? Brother Hagin started talking about meditating in the Word. He started talking about the fear of the Lord being uh, used in Psalms and Proverbs, talking about putting the Word first in your life and things like that. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. I want to do that. But how do you ever get to where he is? Honest to goodness, it seemed to me to be an impossible task. Started hearing scriptures like Joshua 1.8. This book of the law, which represents the word, that's all they had in, the, in their day. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. I remember back to the early days, especially in those first two years, but even so after I had committed myself to the Word no matter what. I remember in those early days the struggle that I had to meditate in the Word. It was such a foreign concept to anything I'd ever heard or learned, anything I'd ever been taught in church. To speak the Word... So I'd read the word and I'd say it in my mind, but it was the hardest thing for me. I, I, I hope everybody's not in the same shape, but I hope it doesn't work this way for everybody. But for me, the hardest thing was to vocalize the word. I'm a quiet person anyway, and so I don't talk much. I do all my talking in services. And those three hours a week pretty much do me in as far as wanting to talk. I feel so sorry for people that want to go to lunch with me because we're there to eat. I've been to lunch with people and they've said, you don't talk much, do you? And said, no, I really don't. And so speaking the word was an, a, a challenge for me. It was a real challenge. But I saw what the Bible said about the importance of it. And so I did. I started Reading the Bible, I started looking for the things of God. I wanted to operate where the Word of God was first place in my life. But honest to goodness, I didn't know how. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 6. I really didn't know how. I'd come up on scriptures like this. Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus is talking about material things. God knowing that you need clothes and food and money and rent and so forth. And then in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, I needed those things to be added unto me. When it came to finances, I was not between a rock and a hard place. I was underneath the rock. Had no direction for my life, didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't know what God wanted me to do. And so when I saw this verse of Scripture... And don't misunderstand me. I'm sure I'd heard it a bunch of times in Sunday school through the years and so forth. But again, I didn't know that it was supposed to have meaning for you in, in your life. I didn't know the scriptures were supposed to be used by us. I just thought they were stories and stuff that Jesus said. And, and really didn't know what to do with it. But I saw this scripture, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I had no idea what the kingdom of God was. 
No clue. I hadn't put together what Jesus said in this same chapter in verse 10 where he taught the disciples to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I didn't know that was Jesus' definition of what the kingdom of God is. Just didn't know. So where it says seek first the kingdom of God, I assume that meant seek God's will for your life. And that was an important time in my life. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. Once I started Bible school, I knew I was in the right place, but I didn't know what came next. So if I'm seeking the kingdom of heaven, I know that doesn't mean look for heaven where God lives and Jesus is on the throne at his right hand. I knew that meant the will of God here. But when you don't know, you don't know. And when you are seeking and pushing and searching, sometimes that's the hardest place there is to hear from God. It's a whole lot easier to hear from God when you're at peace and your mind is quiet and you're settled. But I needed so many things all at once that I probably didn't give God much opportunity to tell me anything. If nothing else, my mind would race. Then in the rest of the verse, seek first the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I, I've got to admit to you folks, I thought the, the righteousness, anytime righteousness was used, it had to do with how well I was doing in, as far as overcoming sin. Well, that's a losing battle. You start judging your relationship with God based on how well you're doing Overcoming sin in the flesh. That's a tough road to hoe. Where it says seek first the kingdom of God. I thought that was a generic term. I thought that was some vague thing that just meant stuff, like, stuff pertaining to God. Well if it means stuff pertaining to God. Then what does seek first the kingdom of heaven mean? Seek after vain, vague things about God? Had to mean more than that, but I didn't know. Didn't know what it should mean. And folks, I'm ashamed to say this. It's taken me as long as it has to start seeing some things about the righteousness of God and the kingdom of heaven as what it has. I see it now and it's so clear and I think, you idiot. How could you have gone this long? How could you have pastored this long and not know any more than that? Now, I have to confess, folks, I'm pretty hard on myself. I'm not hard on anybody else, but I'm pretty hard on myself. And that doesn't work well either. You just dig yourself a, dig, a, a deeper hole, which is exactly what I was doing. But, folks, there are some things... And again, I come from things that come from the angle of the big picture. The big picture is very simply that God lost his son. I'm talking about Adam. He lost his son and his daughter in the Garden of Eden. Their spiritual nature changed. They went from life to death, spiritual death. Completely opposite 
from what God's will was. God lost his family. And everything about covenants, everything about relationships that he established, covenant relationships he established with uh, Abraham and everybody else for that matter, was all about getting his family back. It was all about getting his family back. I hate to think of the years I've wasted not understanding that what God wants me to seek and pursue and understand and search out was the righteousness that Jesus purchased for us and not behavior, our behavior in our own lives. I wasted decades where I could have been much more effective for God. I could have enjoyed my walk with God much better if I had pursued what Jesus had done for us. And when I say pursued, I mean pursued the understanding of that, continuing the word in that regard, and made that the focus of my life rather than trying to justify stuff that I was doing or feeling guilty and repenting, fall, repent, feel guilty, repent, you know the cycle. But here what the Bible says, seek first his righteousness, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God wants us to major on what Jesus did, not on what we did, not on what we have done successfully or haven't done. It's about coming back to the relationship that God intended for Adam and Eve are intended for man since Adam and Eve. Look with me over, with me over to uh, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about uh, one of the issues, major issues of their day. You know from historical accounts and um, archaeological finds and stuff like this, People in the day that Paul was ministering as just a function of the Roman Empire, they worshipped dozens of gods. They would offer sacrifice to any and every god that had a temple down the street. There's a, a place in the, uh, the ruins of Ephesus that they've identified that there are five temples side by side, right next to each other. And people would go from one temple to the next temple to the next temple to the next temple. And it's said that uh, in places like Ephesus, they would have certain days, special holidays or what we would consider to be holidays, feast days for them, where they would emphasize one God over another. And the reason that they were all trying to capture some day for everybody to come worship their God is so that they weren't left out by everybody worshiping other gods. And so the meats and the animals that were offered as sacrifices in, uh, in these other temples, they would oftentimes be taken to the market, sold into the market for people to, to use for their food, their dinners, and, and so forth. Well, that created a real problem for a lot of Christians because they got thinking, developed a, a notion or an understanding that to eat something offered to an idol would be turning our back on God. And so Paul goes through a lot of detail in the letters that he wrote to the churches 
about how it doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus did. And if you're not worshiping, if you're not eating meat offered to an idol as a means of worshiping that God or that idol, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything at all. But he talks about not offending your brother. He talks about making the, the measuring stick what would cause somebody else to stumble, not what do I want to do. And he establishes that as the principle for Christian life. But after having said these things, notice in verse 17, Romans 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Now, meat and drink could be substituted for anything and everything that uh, somebody might think that they're supposed to do for God. He's saying the kingdom of God is not brought about by a work of the flesh. In their case, it was meat and drink, foods and drinks offered to idols. He said, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Well, what is it, Paul? But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about relationship. When I made the statement that I did a little bit ago about all the years that I've wasted, what I really mean by that is I spent a long time, many years even after I started pastoring, years after I knew that God wanted me to be in ministry. I've spent a lot of years, wasted a lot of years in turmoil, I hate to say it's anguish. I don't think that's a good word to, to identify it. But I've spent a lot of time driving, pushing, trying to make myself feel okay as far as my relationship with God is concerned. Rather than letting the power of the Holy Ghost operate easily and freely because of who we are in Him. Now, I don't want to paint a bleak picture, and, and when I talk about the years that I've wasted, I could kick myself for not being any smarter about the word than, than I have been. I could kick myself for not focusing earlier on about being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Because he was made sin for us who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says... For God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The key word there is made. The key word is made. Now, I'm smart enough to know that you can't work your way toward God. You can't earn salvation or gain salvation by your own works. I've always known that. Grew up with that knowledge as a young child. So I know that's not how it works, but why is it that so many of us are trying to work our way toward God once we become his child? There's only one answer, and that is because we haven't sought his righteousness. We've still been seeking our own. We've still been trying to do things that make us feel good about our relationship with God, because whether we do or don't do things don't, doesn't change anything from God's standpoint. He's been there all along. But so much of what we've done, so much of what I've done has been about works. 
Let me identify and define some of these words for you. In Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness. The word righteousness means justification. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about being joined and united with God. The word peace literally means to join. It can mean prosperity. It means every good thing because God is on your side. You're united with God, so therefore he's on your side. And then the word joy. I'm not a real demonstrative person, so the devil has for a long time tried to beat me up about joy. People react to things differently. Some people are, are much more outward show to the things that they're joyful about and so forth. This word joy, I love this word joy. It set me free when I found it a long time ago. It means calm delight. So the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness, relationship, peace, being joined together with God and everything set right, and joy, calm delight in the Holy Ghost. Folks, it's the same thing that John's talking about. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Paul says that's what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is knowing you're united with God, that he's on your side. And so no matter what happens, no matter what situation we find ourselves, no matter what attack of the enemy, we win. We win. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. If there's one thing that the Lord seems to be leading me toward, it is to relax. To enjoy my life united with him, joined with him. I feel like I've spent all of my Christian life, certainly all of my adult life as a Christian, pushing, striving, driving toward something. I don't even know what I'm driving toward. And the Holy Ghost is saying, relax. The Holy Ghost is saying, relax. I told you earlier the idea of confessing the word and the importance of confessing the word I saw. But being vocal about it was a, was a real, well, I just wasn't accustomed to it. It took me a long time to get used to that. I'd see things that the, the Bible says to do, renew your mind and things along that line. And I used, I, I'd see Brother Hagin, he was the example of it. He was obviously somebody that had given his life in that regard. And so I, I knew not because he told me, not because he t talked to us about it, but I knew he's thinking of the word all day long. And I could not figure out how do you get to the place where the word is constantly on your mind. And the Lord reminded me some time ago, that's what it's like for me now. It would be hard for me to not think about the word. It would be hard for me not to meditate in the scripture. Meditating day and night I don't even think about meditating day and night. I'm always meditating day and night. I'm always speaking the word now, not to other people, not for the sake of other people, but I'm always speaking the word to myself. That's one reason why I like to spend a lot of time my, by myself. 
spend a lot of time alone. That's my time to talk with God. And if prayer is just communion and fellowship and talking with God, I pray all day, every day. I don't have any set times. I don't need them. Because I'm talking to God constantly. And my relationship with God has gotten so much better, it's not even funny. Because now I'm at peace. Now I'm joyful about what the Holy Ghost has done. Joyful about what he, whatever he needs to do, he, that he will do, depending on the work of the enemy against me or the circumstances that arise. I finally come to the place where I can relax. Now, it's not like it happened this week. It's not like God told me these things yesterday morning or something. But there have been fewer years where I've been relaxed than the number of years where I was driving forward. All God's looking for is relationship. Jesus talked about relationship. He talked about some of these very same things. If you abide in me, John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. He's talking about relationship. If he's the vine and we're the branches, he's talking about being connected. He's talking about being united. I see stories in the Old Testament now in a different light. David went to the battle as a, about a 17-year-old kid. Wanted to know how things were going when he took his brother's food. Found out there hadn't been any battles for the last 40 days because Goliath has been coming out challenging the armies of Israel and defying God. And David, as a 17-year-old boy, said, why isn't somebody doing something about this guy? People start making excuses, and David says, I'll go. And he did. Now, why was he able to go? Why was he able to think that he could get the job done? Because David understood something apparently nobody else in the army did. He understood God was on his side. He understood that he had a relationship with God that assured him victory. Now, let me say that again. He had a relationship with God that assured him victory. He wasn't afraid to go. The size of the giant didn't matter to him. And when he went out to, to meet Goliath, Goliath starts cursing him, starts making fun of him. David says, I'm going to take your head off today. That's pretty good for a kid that's carrying a sling and five rocks. And when the time came, he ran toward Goliath. He knew he had a relationship that assured him of victory that assured him of victory. Look with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, verse 14, in righteousness shalt thou be established. It's what God was after all along. Not your righteousness, but us being made his righteousness. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. 
Skip down to verse 17. He said, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith God. Now, folks, when you understand that righteousness is the thing that Adam and Eve lost for mankind, when the loss of righteousness plunged them into spiritual death, separation from God, spiritual separation from God, and put in bondage all of mankind, when you realize that the only thing that can fix that problem from God's standpoint is that he's got to find a way to make man righteous again. But it's got to be done legally. It has to be by man's choice. God can't take away man's choice or his authority here on the earth. It has to be by choice, not forced upon us. And so he executes the plan that he had even before man was ever made about Jesus offering himself. Jesus being made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. When you understand that God's whole thing, everything, the whole of the Bible and every story in it is about man being made righteous, about man coming back to righteousness, the righteousness that he lost, but coming back to righteousness because of what Jesus did, the price that Jesus paid. When you understand that, then when God stands up and says in verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, he's talking relationship. He's talking the same thing that, that uh, David must have understood when he went out against Goliath. He's saying no weapon formed against you shall prosper. He's telling us we can't lose if we know who we are. We can't lose if we know who we are. And then, the, then God goes even further and he makes a declaration. I can see him almost shouting it in the ears of the enemy. Their righteousness is of me. Because the devil wants to remind you and remind God and remind anybody and everybody double time about how you and I have failed, about how you and I have messed up. And he wants us to think that our failure changes things. But it doesn't change anything. Because God says their righteousness is of me. So since our righteousness is of him, since it's been purchased and obtained for us by the work of Jesus, how can we lose? How can we lose? The Lord uh, has been reminding me a lot here over the last several weeks of the things that he's done. Whereas I have a tendency, and maybe you do too, to look at things for how we want them to be as opposed to how they are. It's a whole lot easier for all of us to see, I think, what is yet to be done and what needs to be done rather than what has already been done. So the Lord's been reminding me of things that only he could do that have been done already. 
He really arrested me a couple of weeks ago to point out things that I was believing for that have occurred. And he asked me, point blank, how could that have happened if it hadn't been for me doing it? And there is no answer to that. They couldn't have happened. If God hadn't done it, there's no way. And then he challenged me further. He said, how is it possible, seeing what I've already done, how is it possible to think that I wouldn't do the other as well? Folks, it really is impossible for his word to fail. And it's impossible for us to fail when we're standing on his word. It's impossible. God's word cannot fail. It cannot fail. It may not work as quickly as we want it to. We may have some of our own ideas about how we think it should occur and come to pass. And sometimes we're wrong about what we think and how we think things ought to go. But it doesn't change the truth of the word. It's impossible for his word to fail. We've got a greater covenant, a better covenant established upon better promises. We've got a better relationship than David had that secured his victory with Goliath. I have no doubt but what God caused Goliath to be the biggest thing that anybody had ever seen. To show us that if David, under an old covenant, a covenant not as good as what we have, a relationship with God that's not as good as what we have, could win the victory in his battle, how much more will you and I win ours? Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Your righteousness is of him. Can't be faulty. Has to be complete because it's of him. It's not affected. It's not damaged. It's not injured in any way by your failure or mine. And never will be. Your righteousness is of God. Our righteousness is of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek the relationship that we have with God and watch his will come to pass in your life. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. How are we going to do that? By continuing in the word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus said, you shall ask what you will and it will be done for you. And that's what glorifies God. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. I believe the greatest victories we we gain in life are the ones that come because we realize that we're a child of God joined with our Heavenly Father. We may look at it in simpler terms than that. We may look at it as we were believing for the rent 
to be paid, and it was, and that's great. We may look at it as believing for our healing, and it comes, and that's great. But when we go a step further and realize the reason it came is because we've been joined together with our Father. That's the greatest victory we can have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for the privilege that we have to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. What a blessing, Father, to be able to hold fast to your word. What a blessing to see our faith bring to pass everything your word says is ours. Father, we choose to rest in you. Even as Hebrews chapter 4 says, we which have believed do enter into rest. Because we know we're joined with you, we know you're on our side. So, Father, we thank you that our bodies are healed. We thank you that our finances are abundant. We thank you, Father, that our peace is great because we're joined with you. We're joined together with the creator of the universe. Therefore, Father, we declare, because we believe in our heart, that it's impossible for your word to fail. It's impossible for us not to receive if we simply hold fast to the truth. Thank you, Lord, for making us know even more than we ever have just what it means to be joined together with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to challenge you, folks. I want to challenge you to make your pursuit the understanding of the righteousness that we've been made in Him. The more we know, the more we understand, the more we meditate and come to the realization of being made righteous the greater victory we'll walk in here on the earth. It's all about righteousness. Salvation is righteousness. The things that belong to or are included in salvation is righteousness coming into being in our lives. We have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.